everyone. Welcome to Wish You'd Known. It's a podcast for those in the advice industry who have a particular focus on life risk insurance. And we really want to help educate you, the next generation of financial advisors, uh, when it comes to life risk insurance. This podcast is hosted by myself, Glenn James and Danny Visser. Uh, Danny isn't with me for this episode because I was in Canberra catching up with our guests today. I want to really thank OnePath and Zurich for getting behind We Should Know. It's an industry initiative, but they've stepped up to help us bring you this podcast and support the industry as a whole. So you can check out a link in the show notes to some resources from Zurich OnePath and you will not be disappointed. So thank you so much to the team at Zurich and OnePath. Now, I caught up with Catherine Hayes. She's a camper advisor. She's a risk-only specialist, and I've known her for some time, and I personally think she is such a good risk insurance writer, and she's had a lot of experience working with mortgage brokers and receiving referrals and how to frame that discussion. You will learn so much from her, and my challenge is what's one thing you can take away from what she says to implement into your advice process today? Catherine, thank you so much for joining us on Wish You'd Known. How are you going? I'm going pretty well. Pleasure to be here. Well, you're a specialist risk advisor. You have been an advisor for maybe only a million years. <laughs> yeah, it's it's been a little while. I keep, I've, you know, when you update your FSG and you go, you know, Catherine is an advisor of five years. You know, I've given up. I've just written down, you know, since you know, 2003 or something because yeah. it's making me feel old. <laughs> yeah. And we wanted to talk to you about the referral sources when it mm-hmm. comes to risk insurance, um, your view of the world and all that. On the premise of the podcast, that's wish you'd known. So if there's a new advisor out there or somebody who maybe wants to get into risk insurance and they're maybe only doing wealth and all that stuff, mm. getting good leads from mortgage brokers, you've had a lot of experience. Yes. What do you wish you'd known when it comes to leads from mortgage brokers and other referral sources? Okay. Well, mortgage brokers specifically, one thing I learned pretty fast was you really do need to get to know the individual mortgage broker because I had this idea of I was going to run this certain process and routine and then you just work out that even in a firm where there's a bunch of mortgage brokers working together, they all work different ways. Like some are really hands-on and they're doing a lot of the work themselves and whereas you've got the complete opposite end where you've got ones that are like a front man or a front woman, they do the meet and greet, say, yeah, 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 we'll do this, hand the file off to an assistant and they're the ones who actually have the relationship with the client. So you've got to work out who's got the relationship with the client, who's got the information, how do they like to work? And then once you figure that out, work out the way they like to work. So do you think you wasted maybe a bit of time in the early years trying to massage a referral source that actually wasn't going to work because they weren't the main referrer or decision maker or they just didn't yeah, care? Yeah, decision maker um, and finding out what they care about. So one of the mortgage brokers that I work with particularly was very passionate about guarantors being protected and he was quite happy to actively promote the need for personal insurance with um, anybody who was considering guarantor and even make the parents. So so things like even the parents would get CC'd on an intro email to going, I am making sure that your kid is protecting you. So that was like any case that came through like that, it was a done deal. It's funny you say what's important because in my experience, some referral sources, mm. they honestly, it was just all about how can I maximise the revenue to my business? So it's either the tick and flick with the LMI and all that rubbish insurance mm. Or, no, we genuinely care 
that people that we, you know, help get a mortgage are actually protected. Mm-hmm. So what's your experience been with uh, different centres of influence with that we just want money or we just care? I've never worked on a paid referral um, arrangement before. JVs mm. I've done, yep. but never uh, FIFA referrals. Yeah. I just say, look, I don't want you to send me to someone because you're going to get a cut of something and vice versa. I want you to send me someone and vice versa because you think I'm the best person for the job. That's yeah. it, clear and simple. And if they don't like that, I don't work with them. Yeah, okay. So it's more about that you want a relationship that aligns with your values. Yes. Yeah, interesting. Along these lines, what would you say is the most successful strategy to fire up a relationship if you're maybe new in town or you've just moved to a city and you want, or you've just wanted to start your own uh, business? Like, how do you get risk leads? <laughs> well, I'm one of those people, I hate things like B&I and all those kind oh, of things. I so do I. I suck at those. And I just, I don't know, it just doesn't sit right with me. And I, that's purely a personality thing rather than a judgment on the situation. Totally. Um, so for me, I just, you just have to find your people and that takes a little bit of time. But once you've done that, I find people really feel like they know something that other people don't don't know. Mm. Um, and one of the things that's been a really good campaign for me is things like last year when we had agreed value disappearing. One of the things I let you know referral partners know and my clients know, I was saying, look, if you this is what agreed value is, and if you want it, you need to act pretty quickly. And I was giving people you know six months lead time. And the amount of volume of business that came through was insane. People were, clients were referring more than ever before. Referral partners were referring more than ever before. So if they feel like they know something and it's time limited, people want to act quite quickly. So do you find um, educating the mortgage broker or referral sources Mm. about some high level things that they can remember to tell their clients? Oh, education, referral sources, um, education of the clients is probably my number one thing. Yeah. Yeah. And how do you, uh, so you found a, a referral source mm. and I, I'm reflecting on mine and it might be a similar story for a lot of people listening. When I first started my business, I think I talked with over 30 different referral sources where like in my broader area mm. and I filtered it down to probably two who actually had some type of relationship with. Because mm-hmm. um, you found your people, right? And it was that you want these people that you would genuinely bring into your house and have a barbecue with. Yeah, absolutely. Like who wouldn't want to work with people that they like and trust? Mm. Because I, I spent probably the first, when I got my first office, it was within a mortgage broking business mm-hmm. for maybe almost two years. And I was young, 25, 26, and I probably got five, six leads. Mm-hmm. And looking back- There was I wish, way more opportunity. I than, wish yeah. I knew that, yeah. hang on, they're not sending a lead. They're, you know, old dogs, they don't care about the client. It's just we want to write mortgages and get out of there. There was just no value alignment. Mm. Yeah. And I find also claims experience too. People Mm. love hearing, people like feeling good. Mm. And um, if you can get a couple of uh, claim stories to share and once you get to a point where one of someone that they've sent you has gone through a claim and they see the difference, it's like always that scenario that people usually seem to want to get insurance when, you know, they can't get it anymore. (laughs) Or because it's happened, like someone they know has had a claim. Like that's when the usually the biggest sense of urgency is. Okay, so we've fast forward. We've found people that can refer us risk leads, mm-hmm. or we think there's an in principle yes, we align. You know, whether we on the same volleyball team or whatever that is, yep. or see the world the same way. 
we'd now need to get them to start referring their clients. Mm -hmm. How do we help that mortgage broker referral source to embed a process to introduce Catherine to my clients? Yes. So, once again, working out how it works. So, when I work with mortgage brokers, it was a combination of regular catch-ups, like a scheduled catch-up once a week to go through, okay, what loans have you settled? Let's talk about your clients. Give me a scenario and just notepad, writing it all down. And so having a scheduled routine catch-up was one way. Um, In other scenarios, it's more about embedding a process of, say, a client service officer who may be working with the client and having a checklist they would use for their process, whether that's an accounting firm or a mortgage broker, something that they have to work through which is a prompt for them to use. And then in other places, it might be a a flyer that you design that goes as part of their welcome pack when they onboard somebody. So just finding out what works for the business. Do you find, you know, getting referral sources on board is awesome? It's one thing. Mm -hmm. How do we then filter out to get referred the right client. Oh, that's just conversations. You've got to have those brave conversations going, oh man, the person you sent me, never send me someone like that again because it happens. Yeah. You know, that really does happen. Yeah. And um, one of the reasons it's really important to work with people, like you said, you'd you'd happy to have them in your home, is it really does, I like a no dickhead policy. And honestly, if they don't want to dickhead clients and we like the same sort of people, usually that filters out that scenario. Totally, totally. So you've got the client, they've been through the mortgage process, Mm -hmm. which, and this is the the dance, right? Like, particularly if you're with first home buyers and you want to write the risk on the back of that, they've had this fire truck of information. (laughs) Oh yeah, they're on a steep learning curve. Yeah, they got all their mortgage, there's paperwork, we don't know, we're just trusting this mortgage broker. Mm. Now we're, you know, going to meet with this other person that the mortgage broker has told us we have to deal with. Mm. How do you walk through one, the journey, the overload of information? Do you have to make sure you get it sorted before the property settles? Because after the property settles, we don't care about anything because we've got our house. How do we walk that line? Just have that conversation with the client. Because I have some clients you call up and say, hey, this is what I'm here to do. I want to take you through this process. We're going to discuss this now that you've had all these changes and you've got this problem you need to deal with. Some people will turn around going, oh my God, I'm in the middle of the moving house. I just don't know where anything is. I just can't deal with it right now. Whereas other people going, oh, this is awesome. I've got so much time off because I'm in the middle of moving house. I can come in tomorrow. <laughs> so you got to have the conversation with the client. And if they say, look, I can't do it right now, when we say, well, when should we book it in? Let's, let's book something in and we'll send a reminder, you know, in the lead up to that and we'll go from there. It's, you know, looking back, it's that dance between I'm really desperate to have business because if I'm not getting new clients and new insurance cases, I'm not getting paid, I don't have a business. Mm. That's one side of the coin. The other side of the coin, how many times looking back on your career have you looked like I chased that person up so many times, they were never interested. They just couldn't tell me no. Oh, I've had some cases like that. And, you know, I've got one particular case, which I've never really forgotten, where I had a lead from a mortgage broker and this guy had consolidated a serious amount of credit card debt and still had debt left over that couldn't be consolidated. And his wife was on maternity leave and they were actually going backwards every month. And it was one of those scenarios where you go, you really need this insurance because if anything happens to you, you you know, you're fucked. Yeah. (laughs) I hope you, you know, got explicit rating on the podcast there. Not at all. (laughs) 
<laughs> um, so I had that scenario and you had that conversation. He goes, I agree. I really need it. I just can't afford it. Just wait until my wife goes back to work. So, you know, touch base, wife went back to work. And I said, look, you said you wanted to have this conversation. We had the conversation and it came up with that same thing going, oh, you know, I just want to use this extra income to smash down those debts we got. Anyway, and I touched base with him another six months later and I called him up and the first thing he said, oh, it's you. I'm like, what's up? And he goes, I wish I took your advice. I'm like, okay, what's happened? And he said, I've just been diagnosed with leukemia. And yeah, a couple of young kids, sole income earner at that point. And yeah, and I never heard from that guy after that. Mm. I don't even know if to this day he's alive, but it's one of those things that you think about. I understand the toughness of the situation he was in. Mm. It's one of those ones where you go, is there anything I could have done? Um, But at the end of the day, it's that whole, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make it drink. And and for your own sanity, you have to let those ones go. Mm. Yeah. What's the most common pushback you get from prospects and what do you say to overcome it? I don't get too many pushbacks, but that's because I really focus on working out what are the likely objections they're going to have when they come to see me and preempting those. So we don't even have, the best way to avoid an objection is to avoid it in the first place. And also it's, you know, the referral sources, whether it's mortgage broker, accountant, existing clients, Mm. as your business gets more mature, the leads generally are more hot and warm anyway? Yeah. When I first started out, it was me driving, trying to get referrals. Mm. Whereas now it's just, they come. Here's the thing for maybe those who are new to advice. If you are in a a relationship with a referral source, who's got good supply of referrals? Mm. You know, it was funny. One thing I learned and it was kind of a penny drop moment. I don't know if you can think back to 1912, like when we both started. Yep. (laughs) Uh, it was still black and white in those days. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> we got this, we're getting these leads in mm. and they're here to get insurance. Yeah. I don't actually have to sell it. I just have to pick up the process and confidently say, this is what we do, this is what we do. It's not as if it's a cold call you have oh, to man. sell. So it was- I cut my teeth on cold calls. <laughs> yeah. And see, I didn't. I had to learn yep. the hard way that, you know, a lead that came through, they didn't necessarily need to be sold. Mm -hmm. They had to be educated. Yeah, absolutely educated. And yeah, for me, I really, I mean, it depends for me where a lead has come from. Yeah. Um, I've got my own podcast as well. And if I get a lead that's come from that, it's usually because they've listened to the episode where I talk about the value of insurance and why it's important. And so when I come in and I say, look, have you listened to the episode? And odds are they kind of already know what I'm about and what they want, but we just do a very quick recap just so I can satisfy myself that they understood what they listened to. And I think if you're, you know, getting started and you really want to maximise the time, you know, why not do some F, uh, FAQ questions on mm-hmm. a video and when you first get the lead, say, hey, watch this YouTube, here are the top five things people ask me. Like Yeah, well, I've, I've done that with the ones where I do suspect they're a little bit cool. I've said, um, I'm going to send you a link to the podcast episode I recorded on this. I want you to have a listen. Here's also the link to book in to make an appointment with me. If you listen to this and you agree on my philosophies and you think after listening to this that there's some things you hadn't considered and you want to chat about them, book in and we'll have a chat. And that's really good because, one, it saves me having a conversation, you know, over 40, 50 minutes that I may not have had uh, time to have otherwise. And when my client, that cold client does come back, they're keen. And if they were never going to be convinced, you know, then I don't have to waste my time. Yeah. 
And I think these things, it is a case in point where hopefully if you're listening to this and you are new to risk advice, can you pick up one or two things that, you know, either Catherine's been through or I've been through that can stop you wasting time, wasting emotional energy. Mm. And I really believe, and for me, this learning curve of I don't have to sell risk. I don't, I just have to clearly educate Mm -hmm. clients in a way for them to make their own decision. Oh, absolutely. I I think it actually makes for more compliant advice as well. So um, I've attended, oh God, I've read so much on other advisors and how they focus on risk and I've done workshops. Chris Unwin, he, um, he's he got his risk academy and one of the things he talks about the difference between a needs analysis and a wants analysis and that's something that really struck home with me about the importance and so I, I call it a needs analysis but I focus on desired outcomes. What is it that you want? Mm. Um, because at the end of the day I tell my clients, look, my job is to work out everything that is that you want if X, Y, Z happens. I will work out how much cover you need for that mm. but if I work at how much cover you need and it's affordable, beautiful, we've solved your problem. But what you want isn't always going to be what you can afford mm. and it isn't necessary to ensure for everything. So I will usually have options B and C ready to go to say, look, we'll find something that fits your budget. And for clients that choose something scaled down, which doesn't cover everything, they've either worked out the extra cost wasn't really worth it, so they do that trade-off, or they go, look, something's better than nothing and we will come back when our situation allows us to. And that just allows for ongoing engagement with that client. Yeah, I'm, I'm a firm believer of not fighting in front of the kids. And why, why I say that is there's a lot of noise going on in the industry mm. where we're all full of compliance. You need to shield your clients from that. Mm. And I think it's a matter of saying, hey, we're going to work with what you need and I'm going to come back to you with some initial figures that's a talking point. Yep. Because I can't just give you, oh, what's 500 grand worth of cover? What's a million? No, let's actually put some science behind this and we'll get to a talking point. Exactly. So that's what I do in my second meeting. We have we figures against goals, some estimates on costs. And so we really get that detailed discussion. And then we have an agreement on cost, broad range of the cover as far as a strategy goes. And if a client says yes at that point, only then do we prepare a statement of advice. And that's when they find out the key details, the insurer, the other aspects. But because they already agreed on the idea, the concept of what's it going to cost them and uh, you know how much coverage they're going to get and what they're not going to be covered for, the SOA is 100% implementation from that point. Yeah, and I'm a firm believer that, you know, compliant advice doesn't need to be awkward and no. weird for the client. No. <laughs> like just make it bloody easy for the client yep. and just hide all that stuff from them mm-hmm. if you can. You've got to have systems and processes uh, in the background to help you do that. Now, what technology do you use to help with your processes and client journey? Okay, so our workflow tracking, um, I use some accounting software actually that was uh, for the US. So it's called Jetpack Workflow because I found that most of the software CRMs didn't really give me a solution that I could work with. It was if you deviated from the path, it kind of clogged up your workflow and it just it gave me a visual headache. Uh, so this software that I've been using, it's been really good. It's allowed us to map out our process through having workflow threads. And if something doesn't go to plan, we can change something, whether it's the person on the task, um, whether it's the notes within the task itself or when it's due without 
breaking the system and clogging it up. And, uh, and one of the things that I love is once I took a, a VA on board, one of the first things I did, I said, we need to go through and document our processes. So we did that with, uh, you know, uh, loom recordings, um, word doc guides, and these things were all embedded into our processes. So if I have somebody who comes onto my business now for the first time, all I have to do is set them up with a log on and said anything with your name on it that's assigned to you, um, it'll have a headline, but you could actually open up the task and it will tell you how to do your job. And if you are someone who likes dot points, it's there. If you want a full detailed guide with screenshots, it's there. Or if you want to watch a Loom video, it's all there ready for you. So that, you know, make sure we get a consistent process that is followed well. Because we all know there's a squeeze on margin with mm. financial planning practices, whether it's our licensing costs, reduced commission rates across the board, you know, in professional indemnity insurances, it's these background tech things that you can pick up your margin on. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. I um, I feel like we're in this scenario where, you know, we've got a couple of key dominant CRM providers, but I've had this opinion for a number of years that we're kind of like a captive market here in Australia and the best tech really is not a one-size-fits-all solution. It's piggybacking a couple of pieces different together that do their job really well. Yeah. And I think it's just all that garbage in, garbage out. You mm. just have to have good, clean information mm-hmm. and build something customizable to your business. Exactly. And whatever you've got, just use it well. Absolutely. Now, I want to ask every advisor guest on the podcast a bit of uh, their view of the lay of the land. Mm. Uh, at the moment, at the time of recording, a big risk writer, who are you mainly writing at the moment and why? Okay. Well, I go through seasons of who's my favourites and sometimes those seasons come back around. But at the moment, uh, most of my business for my demographics is going towards uh, OnePath and Neos. Right. And I love them for different reasons. You know, they each have their strong points. And uh, for example, Neos, ever since they launched, I was just, you know, I think everyone was amazed at how fast they could underwrite a deal and make quick, reasonable decisions. So that was beautiful. And it was priced well too. So- Mm. All love there, and uh, you know, having a good relationship with and trust with the people before um, before that company even launched. One path, no one has mastered their back end like One Path. And for me, the bigger my business has become, the ability to get accurate data and to be able to serve my clients well, because I think for too long a lot of insurers have completely ignored. Um, the back end of their business because they've all been chasing new business. And it's frustrating when it takes three times the work for, you know, a tenth of the revenue to do a top up or an increase or an amendment. So you can see why people get frustrated and just rewrite a policy. But I'm like, no, I'm not doing that. And you just suffer through the pain. So if there's an insurer that comes along and goes, oh my God, we've invested in our back end and this is so much easier, it's just a breath of fresh air. I know uh, Zurich One Path, they are supporting this podcast at the moment Mm. because I want it to be an industry thing. Mm. But just off the cuff, like the merger of One Path into Zurich, the wash up that you've seen, like there's been no negatives. No, I haven't had any negatives at all. Yeah. You and I have both spent time on the the risk advisor board in the past. So, um, so we've seen some of these changes come before they've even happened, you know, I guess been materialized. We've known about them. Um, But I think they've done a really good job. haven't had any negative impact at all. And, that's one of the things that I found with them that, and I learned that those who tend to write Zurich don't tend to write one path and vice versa. Mm. So I think it's been a pretty smart strategy on their end to keep the brand separate. Yeah, great. Now, 
I want to finish with this whole argument like you're in Canberra, there's a lot of public servants that Mm -hmm. know best than, you know, know better than everybody. (laughs) A lot of intellectuals. (laughs) Yes. um, Fee-for-service for for risk. Um, There's a lot of fee-for-service advisors here. Yeah. What's your view on fee-for-service for for insurance? Uh, We know the whole commission thing with LIF and the Royal Commission, that's still up in the air at the time of recording. Yes. Yes. Um, What are you doing in your business? Okay. So, I charge uh, a hybrid. So I still charge commission. So commission is what I charge my clients, but I also charge, I have a three meeting process, no charge for the initial meeting. I charge, it's basically a tire kicker fee. So it's a $110 fee for the second meeting. Um, and ever since I introduced that, I stopped getting clients rescheduling. So I'd still proceed, but they might reschedule once or you twice. You need to double that fee this year. Oh yeah. Well, um, I charge <laughs> 220 for the SOA. Oh, perfect. And yeah. Yeah. So for the third meeting, that's what I charge. Yeah. And it's not a case of once you go ahead, we'll rebate it. I'm like, no, 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 we, no we're keeping it. <laughs> so, yeah. And that's what you yeah. need to hear out there listening. Mm-hmm. You do not work for free. Mm-hmm. And I've been telling mortgage brokers for years, you need to charge. I know you get commission, but you need to charge a commitment fee that's non-refundable. Exactly. And so and for me, it it literally just stopped people rescheduling. Mm. Um, I went from maybe maybe 20% of my appointments might reschedule. Sorry, I'm a bit busy, a bit tied up. My reschedule rate is next to nil now. So people have paid for it. They want to get their value by turning up. The weird thing is like I used to do the same uh, thing in my business as a human thing, like if someone is paying me, mm. you'll get 120% while I'm at that meeting. Yep. So it's good for them because I'm dialed in and, you know, if they walk away and never hear from them again, I've been paid for a bit of my time. So you've got to see it as a, you're getting paid to pitch your business to this person and you're not getting someone who's flaky anyway. So it is a win-win. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, I'm a big believer in the value that commissions play. I actually wrote an article, God, it might have been like eight years ago or something. It was called The Ethical Problem with Commissions. It was a grab headline for sure. Like a lot of people opened that article getting ready to get angry and then they realised that I basically said the ethical problem is the problems with the individual's ethics. It's not the commission itself. So, uh, yeah, so that was like a pretty intense article that blew up at the time. Um, But at the end of the day, yeah, Ethics is something that we have in every moment of our lives. And one of the things I talk about, you know, if I, you know, I can feel guilty about do I let my kids watch TV so I can go have half an hour's peace, you mm. know, something like that. And that's a decision and a trade-off that I have to work in every moment of the day. But if I am basically putting the client first by going, I will not receive any remuneration until you are 100% satisfied with what I've done for you, I, I, I see that as a best interest aspect and I am not anti-fee-for-service. I think it has its place, but I'm pro-choice. So mm. people need to be able to choose a remuneration model that works for them. And um, as I said, there are heaps of fee-for-service advisors in Canberra and a lot of my referral sources these days come from the fee-for-service advisors whose clients come to them seeking fee-for-service advice and they find that they're quite comfortable on the um, the wealth management side of things. But when it comes to the fees that that advisor has to charge for the risk, when there's an alternative of commissions, most of those clients go, you know what, um, please send me to a risk specialist and I'm happy to have the commission conversation. So I have that all the time. So I'm used to answering questions from those clients about what it is that I actually do that's worth the value. And once they understand, they have no problem. Yeah, I, I just think a lot of it with all the, noise that's going on, like we read trade press and all this stuff, Mm. 
it's actually in our head. And you need to know the clients aren't reading the IFA, the clients aren't reading money no. management. So, a lot of them, it's it's just, you've just got to treat it as normal. If you're worried about the C-bomb, mm. don't use the word commission. You could say brokerage. You know? I use remuneration. That's yeah. what I use. Like yep. you said it before, mm. I'm remunerated for this. Reference it. It's just like your mortgage broker. Uh, anything on the policy, it's just an educational thing. Yeah. And that's one of the things I do as part of my education piece with the clients is I make sure they know how I operate. So I have a letter of engagement, which they get at either before their first meeting or at the first meeting. And it says, for risk advice, this is when I charge and when I don't. So they know there's no charge for the initial meeting. It confirms the other fees. I also It also shows them that I will get a commission for the insurance, um, anything that they take out. And uh, But if we have reviews, because I get the trail, I said, I'm not going to charge you for that. And when it comes to claims management, we will do 10 hours worth of work with no charge when it comes to a claim. So if anything's simple, it's just all included. A life risk business is a socialist business model. It swings and roundabouts. Mm-hmm. And I think it's, you've just got to educate the client and just let them know that we don't work for free. Mm-hmm. We charge this fee here. We will manage your claim if it happens and be confident. Yeah, because, you know, what we do is worthwhile. Exactly. And the long and the short of it is if a client objects at the front to you receiving commission and they don't want to go ahead, they're not a good fit for you anyway. Mm. And that's okay. Yeah. See, yeah. See, my favourite, you know the saying like kiss, keep it simple, yeah, stupid. Yeah. I'm like 90% agree with it. I want, I want them to understand what I've told them, but I also want them to feel it's like a tiny bit complex because that's why I need to be there. They need me because there's a little bit that they know that mm. there's some deeper water undercurrent and that they've got me to sort it out. So Absolutely. that's my goal. Yeah. So with the legislation in at the moment and everything that's happening. Which legislation? <laughs> there's a lot of it. <laughs> I know, right? It's just unbelievable. What I would encourage anyone to do is to implement a commitment fee mm-hmm. because what that's doing, it's more for you because if this pendulum keeps swinging and they strip out all risk commission, mm-hmm. you're already used to charging a fee and having that confidence. So if it does happen in a year, two years or whatever, you're used to doing it. Like it's just you've already practised. Oh, if there's one of those things where you go, you know, what do you wish you knew earlier? I wish I started charging a fee much earlier, you know, and it'll probably be five years from now, I will probably look back to this time and go, I wish I had been charging more. So, you know, you've got to find that balance and what works for you. And at the end of the day, as long as you're growing as an advisor and an individual and you're stepping outside of your comfort zone, I have this thing about being comfortably uncomfortable. Mm. Um, and let's face it, in this job, you've got to do that because you have some pretty awkward conversations. Um, but you've got to get good at that. And um, the more you grow and the better advisor you'll be, better human being. Totally. Catherine Hayes, thank you so much for having a chat with us today. It's a pleasure, Glenn. Thank you so much for listening today. If you are in the advice world and you've made it this far, my question to you is, who can you forward this episode to? Thank you so much for listening. This was made possible because of My Risk Advisor. You can head over to the Facebook group, My Risk Advisor, and join in on the conversation.